Welcome to Australian Hiker. We're your hosts, Tim and Jill Savage. This is episode 81 of the Australian Hiker podcast, and in today's episode, we'll look at my recent Bibbleman track journey and discuss the expectations that I had prior to starting the trip, and then talk about what actually happened in reality as the trip unfolded. No matter how well you plan a trip, real life tends to throw a spanner in the works, so a plan has to be variable and has to be out of change. So we'll see how my planning panned out. We hope you enjoy. So, Tim, we're going to talk about a bunch of things. Um, the first thing we'll focus on is the weather. How did your planning go towards dictating what the weather was going to be while you were walking? Okay. Western Australia tends to have a bit of a, a Mediterranean uh, climate, which means most of the rainfall tends to fall in wintertime. So given that I was starting to at, in the end of winter, I did actually expect to have a reasonable amount of rain. Um, I didn't actually count on... July, uh, which was before I started the trip, being the wettest July, and I think it was 63 years, and August being the wettest August in 58 years, I believe it was. So it was certainly a lot wetter than I actually expected. So on the uh, first day, uh, you posted a, a little clip of you uh, waiting, uh, waiting for the hail to stop for an hour and a half before you headed off. Um, what were you thinking at that moment? Um, well, I'd gone through and uh, I was doing the, the social media just to, before I started my trip, just at the the southern terminus. And it was almost a bit like the, the typical Melbourne weather, if you like, four seasons in one day. So I had sunny, clear blue skies. I had hail. I had torrential rain. And I also had... Uh, um, um, wind gusts as well and I thought look if I wait until the weather's perfect I'll be staying here all day so I was prepared for it equipment wise I had all the wet weather gear on so I just decided rain or not I just have to walk. I must admit when I saw that clip I, I thought oh you know it'll be a day and a half and you'll be coming home <laughs> I, don't know. I know that that wasn't a reflection on you I just thought oh my god what is it going to be like? And I think with, from a weather perspective as well, um, I haven't actually worked that out, and I will actually do that for the uh, the written write-up. I think I worked it out that I had, over the entire 36-day uh, trip, which was uh, 32 days walking and eight day, and four days um, actually um, uh, uh, having a rest, I think I had about eight sunny days where we had no rain at all. Um, and that was probably wetter than I had actually expected. Okay, all right. So the weather, the weather was pretty wet the whole time. Uh, you know, you didn't have too many. You mentioned you had uh, a few eight sunny days. Um, did did it feel wet? Did you did you feel as if you were you know getting over the rain and 
uh, didn't want to see another rainy day? Uh, definitely. Um, I think it's it's one of those sort of things that um, it doesn't matter what the terrain's like, it doesn't matter what the, uh, the climate as a general rule is like. Um, I think when it's sunny and clear skies, um, you tend to just feel a bit better and it's a bit easier to go through and walk. I know for the first three days of the trip, it was pretty much uh, almost gale force winds. And in fact, on the first day, they had forecast 100 kilometre hour wind gusts in the southern, uh, uh, southwestern corner of the state. And we got them, or I got them. Um, I think uh, I'd just done the diversion around the uh, the burnt out um, sand patch site. Uh, I'd gone past the Albany wind farm, just got back onto the boardwalk again uh, where the diversion ended, and I was just standing there looking at the this big storm coming through. And when it hit, if I hadn't have been holding onto the railings on the boardwalk, I would have been blown over. Um, I've been in 100-kilometre wind gusts before, and we got them. Uh, it was, uh, you know, it was sort of, they didn't last very long. Uh, but then, you know, walking along the boardwalk, it was, rain was coming in sideways. Uh, it was windy, uh, and I just had to put my head down and just keep on walking. <laughs> And so you did. <laughs> you did for a thousand kilometres. Well done. <laughs> um, in terms of your physical pre- preparation, you probably weren't um, the most fit that you've ever been for a big walk. You'd done quite a bit of preparation in terms of um, carrying a, a heavy pack up mountains and and things like that. Um, but you were probably carrying a bit more weight than you normally do. Um, so how do you, how do you think you went in terms of um, the start? I mean, we we know that you you lost a bit of quite a bit of weight all, along the way. Um, were you fit enough to to get started? I think there was probably a couple of things that I thought about when I was doing the physical preparation. Um, I over the last couple of years. I'd been going through and pushing my limits to see how far I could walk in a given day, how how much I could back that up um, on multiple days. So I had a um, a reasonably good um, indication of um, uh, what what my abilities were. What I didn't really have an idea was my my longest trip prior to the Bibbulmun track was fifteen days, uh, and this trip I had actually planned on as a thirty seven day trip. Uh, and one of my concerns was uh, repetitive strain injuries. Um, uh, you know, could I could I maintain my planned thirty kilometre a day uh, distance uh, without getting injured and, and without having to come off the track? Um, I, as you said, I was probably about six kilos heavier than I normally would like to be. Um, I and that partly that didn't worry me too much because. I was expecting to lose a lot of weight and wanted a bit of buffer there. Um, I was basically doing pack training for two months prior to the trip. And um, uh, as it turned out, I was training with about an 18 and a half kilo pack. And that was the heaviest that my pack was uh, throughout the trip. Didn't wasn't that heavy that often, but when I had seven to eight days worth of food, um, that was uh, the weight of my pack at that point. So... I think um, um, I was probably as fit as I possibly could have been, um, short of doing a 10 or a 12-day 
um, trip of that sort of length just to really give me a good indication. Um, I think it was probably, probably I'd done the fitness training I'd needed to. Um, having said that, though, um, I think um, it took me probably around about two weeks to really get my full-on fitness. Um, I think that, um, um, you know, as I said, it wasn't until I got past the Donnelly, Donnelly River area um, that was when I really gained my full fitness. I mean, going through Donnelly River as an example, I'd walk up steep hill, walk 20, 30 metres, uh, take a bit of a break, catch my breath, and then continue on again and do the same thing after another 20 or 30 metres. By probably the end of the third week, um, walking up steep hills just didn't phase me at all. Um, yes, it was a physical exertion, but I wasn't really noticing it. It was just, I just keep on walking, uh, thinking, yeah, it's a tough hill, but it, I didn't have to stop at that stage. You mentioned uh, overuse injury and your, your concern. Did you have any overuse injuries? No, surprisingly enough, I didn't. Um, I came across, I did come across a number of hikers who, um, in fact, I came across three hikers who had gotten overuse injuries uh, in their Achilles um, and ended up having to, you know, they went and talk, saw a doctor and were told, do nothing for 10 days. So they interrupted their trip and before getting back on the track again. Um, I, on average, walk around about 70 to 80 kilometres a week. Uh, for this trip, I was doing more than that, and I was doing it also with um, at least a portion of that with um, with a heavy pack. So I think um, while it was a concern, I think I'd probably done everything I could in the preparation for the trip to ensure that I wasn't going to have too much problems. Um, while I said that I was averaging 30 kilometres a day, um, surprisingly enough for me, my first day was just over 38 kilometres. That wasn't the plan. Um, it was just the, the way it ended up being. Um, but my next day after that was 13 kilometres. So for me, day two was always the most difficult day. And I know day one, I feel really good. Day two is when I sort of struggle. And then after that, I'm fine. Okay. Um, so how many blisters did you have along the way? Um, it was really the first day um, that caused a lot of the blisters. Um, again, I'd done a lot of preparation beforehand, but um, it doesn't matter how much you prepare, um, you, you you will have blisters doing multiple days of the, of the sort of distances I was doing. So prior to the trip, I'd actually gone and seen a podiatrist, uh, and even though I knew the theory of what I needed to do for taping my feet to help prevent blisters, I hadn't actually done it before, so I had... Um, I had a podiatrist teach me properly how to go through and tape the feet. Um, now, in one of the posts that I did prior to this trip, uh, uh, I actually ended up doing full foot taping. And by the um, a week or so in, I'd actually gone through and I was doing taping to the heels as need be, and it was mainly the front of the foot. Now, I, I tend to walk a bit strangely, and as I'm sure everybody has the little quirks, uh, it doesn't matter what shoe I wear, I grip uh, with my front with my toes. Uh, so as a result, uh, it's always the little toe on the left foot that tends to be the issue. I tend to get a blister on that. Uh, so I ended up going through and putting a band aid on that after the first day, and then it started shifting to other toes. 
So again, after about a week or so, I had calluses on the end of all my toes pretty much. And that's just a normal phase I go through. And what about toenails? How many toenails have you lost? Uh, no toenails, surprisingly, this time. One of my toenails did go black. Um, and I think that was my own fault. That was actually more into the trip itself where um, I hadn't actually trimmed my nails um, adequately or or, my, or been, gotten on top of it. Uh, and I think the, tail, the the nail was a bit long. So as a result, I ended up uh, ending up with uh, getting bleeding under one of the toenails. Uh, I don't think I'm going to lose that toenail, but it, yeah, the toenail was black uh, simply because it... Uh, you know, ended up cutting into the end of the toe and, and causing, causing causing bleeding under the toenail itself. And um, anything in relation to, um, I guess, other things that are happening with your feet? Um, one of the issues I tend to have is um, certainly the toes. To me, the toes are reasonably minor. Um, where I tend to have issues is where the toes meet the ball of the foot. Um, and that's where I always tend to get the hot spots. And as I said, the taping made a huge difference. Uh, I was something I was worried about. Um, I was concerned that uh, particularly over a trip of this length, it was going to cause me issues. And I did end up taping probably uh, uh, um, reasonably regularly for the first half of the trip. So the first, probably the first four to 500 kilometers until I developed reasonable callousing underneath the, uh, the, the that area. I also had a problem with the heel of my right foot, and I'm not quite sure why. The last time I had that problem was um, uh, due to a shoe that was too wide at the back. Um, in this case, the shoe size was fine, uh, but for whatever reason, again, the way I walk, I was getting rubbing on the right um, outside of my heel, uh, and this was just coming a bit into North Cliff. And I was walking down uh, a farm road, that was muddy, was wet, was full of cow poo, um, <laughs> and uh, you know my shoes smelled horrendous. And I ended up um, getting at the collie and actually washing the shoes uh, as best I could and drying them out. Uh, but I realised I did actually have an infection in the heel of my right foot. Um, and by the time I discovered that, it was a bit painful, thinking it was just a blister. Uh, but once I'd cleaned it up, um, it was. Yeah, it was on the mend by the time I discovered it. Um, so I ended up actually taping the heel as well. Okay. Uh, and I think for me, the taping was probably one of the best things that I that I, that I learned uh, before doing this trip. Uh, and it's always I always tend to have issues when I'm doing days of twenty five kilometres plus on a regular basis. Okay. So while we're talking about um, feet, I know we're going to um, touch on equipment a bit later. Um, you had one pair of shoes the whole time. Yep. Um, so a thousand kilometres is a pretty big run for one pair of shoes. And um, uh, I had, I can't remember how many uh, replacement insoles I sent over, uh, probably three, I think. So I had a pair of um, Merrill FST, um, Moab FSTs. So they're the, the trail runner, the lighter weight trail runner than, uh, of the Moabs. Um, they're breathable, so if you're walking in water, they fill up with water, but just as equally as they drain fairly quickly as well. So in total, I had three sets of inserts. I used the um, um, the Superfeets. Uh, so I started off with a new pair of inserts and replaced them twice. So for me, normally I get around about 300 to 350 kilometres per set of inserts. 
uh, and I, so I replaced them uh, twice during the trip itself. Um, normally with the shoes, um, as many of you are aware, I have size 14 or size 15 US feet and I struggle to get shoes. So uh, prior to this trip, there was two, two options uh, for shoes. Uh, and I rent, went, ended up going with Merrell's because I was guaranteed I could actually get hold of um, a couple of pairs of shoes in the time frame that I had. And usually I'll get about 1,200 kilometers out of these shoes. Uh, in this case here, there were brand new shoes I started wearing on day one. Uh, and while they've, I could still wear them for another 100 or 200 kilometers, um, they still stink a bit. Uh, and <laughs> I think they're going to end up in the bin before I end up uh, traveling back, back home again. Okay. So um, so what about, um, let's start talking about the track and uh the terrain and the uh, changes in vegetation, um, and also um, the the travelling from south to north rather than north to south. All right, uh, I'll discuss it in that order. So, with the terrain, it, it's quite funny. I ha I've seen plenty of photos of the Bibbulmun track. I had visions in my mind of something that was relatively dry, not not to the extent of something like the Larapinta Trail or the central desert area of, of Central Australia. But if, I don't know why. I just assumed that Western Australia was a drier climate and it wouldn't be as wet as it was. Now, just going backwards to the weather, you know, it was one of the wettest uh, ends of winter and start of spring in years. Um, but I think partly the issue was... Um, it was very lush and green, uh, which was fine, but it was also very wet. So um, I think from my perspective, the thing that I really enjoyed was when I had uh, dry days and open sort of forests. So a lot of the southern part of the track started off in coastal vegetation, which is to be expected, uh, uh, and that's really probably for around about the first eight days. Uh, then it changed. I started picking up the bigger trees uh, and started to get a more denser vegetation as I headed into the Tingle Forest. Um, uh, and then up until probably Pemberton uh, and even towards Collie, the forests were reasonably dense. From, uh, from Collie onwards, the vegetation was a bit more open, a bit drier, and something like, from my perspective, something like I went through and preferred. Um, so the vegetation actually had a big impact on how I saw the track, as did the weather. So as I said, when it was sunny, um, my two best periods on the track were just after Collie when it was sunny, and I won't say hot, but it was warm. Um, and also through the Tingle Forest, the Tingle trees were just amazing, uh, even though when I went through there, it was pretty much raining the whole time. So even given the rain and the wet weather, just the actual forest and the uh, the big trees um, was quite impressive. But yeah, 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 there was a lot of the track had a lot of build-up of vegetation. It was quite dense vegetation. Um, and um, as I said, I expected it to be drier than it was. We um, went uh, for a, a short walk from Mundaring Weir to Ball Creek Hut, 
Um, and along the way, the track uh, looked quite wide to me and quite um, uh, easily navigatable. Um, what was that typical of the whole trip? The track actually varied quite a lot. Um, certainly, that that short walk we did, that one day or half day walk we did from Mundaring to Ball Creek, it actually is actually quite a wide track, and it's reasonably open and relatively easy. Uh, and even out of coming out of Pemberton, heading north, the, tra- the track was really wide and relatively easy to walk. Uh, but I did have quite a variety. So, in the southern part of the track, along the coastal areas, uh, a lot of the track was overgrown. So there are a couple of instances, not very long. Um, I was walking on track where I couldn't see where I was putting my feet, and that was a bit of a concern. I was worried about whether I was about to tread on a snake or not. So I certainly had the tracking poles out, and I was prodding ahead of me just to see that there was nothing I was about to step on. Or, or at least to make sure that you knew what you were about to yeah, step on. Yeah, yeah. So I think um, certainly in a lot of areas the track was actually very narrow. Um, you know, it was defined, it was easy to see, but certainly in the coastal regions the track was quite narrow. It was probably at best 40, 50, 60 centimetres wide in a lot of cases. Um, and... Um, then you'd get it that some of the wide areas, um, or you'd get the track would be quite heavily overgrown on the edges. Uh, and during dry weather, that wouldn't have been an issue. Um, but you know, when there's downpour of rain on this heavy vegetation on the side of the track, all the vegetation tends to close in on the track. And you just, it's almost, even though it's not raining, if it had been raining during the night time, I'd put the wet weather gear on. Uh, otherwise, I'd just end up getting drenched and saturated from the water on, the, on the, uh, the plants. Coming past, once I'd gotten past Mount Wells, was probably the, the next big change, if you like. Um, I was actually got to a stage at one point thinking, I haven't seen any rocks in a long time. So coming out of Denmark, uh, walking up a mountain in, in that area, you've got some rocky sheet, uh, sheeted areas. Um, but again, it, it was almost like the bulk of the track had been diverted around any rocks you could see. Getting over Mount Wells, the, the track changed and you started getting a lot more rock on the side of the track. And because of the rain, a lot of the track from Mount Wells to Kalamunda, it was almost like a, walking down a gutter where... A lot of the track had been damaged by the rain and you're having a lot of loose loose rock and large rock, you're having to navigate. So walking uphill was fine, that was, wasn't a problem. Walking downhill tended to slow me down, partly because my knees don't like walking downhill, but also I was worried about slipping on either rock or the large gum nuts that, that dotted the trail uh, and I was just taking it slowly. Um, so... People were worried about the hill, the Perth Hills. It wasn't so much the hills, it was more the result of the weather uh, and the rock that was worrying me. Okay. And, okay, so the south to north thing. Okay, so I, I tossing and turning for a, about a month um, uh, before I'd actually confirmed that I was doing the trip about whether I was going to head from Kalamunda to Albany or vice versa. And talking to the Bibbleman Track Foundation, uh, most people say start in, in Kalamunda. Uh, you don't have to deal with all the heavy, soft sand in the uh, uh, the coastal regions. Um, and um, and I think, I don't know, in hindsight, I am really glad that I travelled north. 
Um, the first hut I had to actually share uh, was actually um, uh, dog pool. Uh, so really I went through probably for about um, – um, I went through probably for about eight days before I had to share. A, uh, in fact, it was about nine or ten days before I actually shared accommodation. Whereas as I got towards the northern end of the track, uh, sharing huts or sharing accommodation was quite regular. Um, it was good to get the coastal area out of the way, uh, even though that the storms had had damaged the beaches quite heavily. Um, I wanted to go against the flow of most of the hikers just so I'd have a chance to talk to people a bit more. Uh, and again, I think that worked well. The, I saw more people in the last week of the trip between Dwelling Up and Perth uh, than I'd seen uh, probably in the rest of the trip combined uh, because most people seemed to be starting their trip uh, beginning of September onwards. And seem to be it's springtime. Let's start walking the track. Um, uh, and uh, for me, I just needed to start a bit early. I was starting sort of on. on I started on the 9th of uh, of um, August. Um, and uh, while I did come across people on the southern end of the track, it wasn't a huge number. It was it was a person here, a person there. Okay, so for normal people who are not um, doing podcasting and um writing articles along the way, would you recommend uh, south to north or north to south? Um, I think there's probably a number of factors here. Uh, I mean, I wanted to see lots of wild wildflowers, and certainly it would have been better if I had started later and travelled from north to the south. Um, having said that, I, I don't know, it was just a mental thing just as much as anything else. Um, I think... Um, um, for me, it was about heading back to Perth. I saw Perth as being the end of the trip. Um, even had I finished in Albany, I would have had to travel back to Perth to head back to Canberra. And it just made sense to me uh, to travel to Perth and have um, that as the end point of the trip. Um, I think I was surprised talking to people in that last week of the trip. Everyone was complaining about how difficult it was. So I think the first week of the trip, regardless of whether you start in the south or the north, is difficult. Uh, certainly for me, with the way the weather conditions were, um, whether it had been starting north or south, it would have been just as wet and rainy. Um, so um, I am really glad I did the south to north. And from my perspective, if I did it again, I probably would travel the same distance, or the same direction. Okay. Okay, so let's move on to food. Uh, there was a lot of food, a lot of measuring out, um, and uh, you know, a lot of um, little little Ziploc bags with white protein powder and all sorts of other things in them. And also, um, along the way, you sent back uh, not a huge amount of food, but you did send back food once you re received a, a new uh, food parcel. So how did you go with your food? Uh, what worked really well? Um, and what do you never want to see again? Um, one of the concerns that I didn't have uh, on this trip um, in relation to food, I, I know from personal experience on previous trips that on a two-week trip, I'll lose about seven to eight kilos. 
for me, exercise is an appetite suppressant uh, and I don't feel like eating at the end of the day. So I was concerned about how much weight that I would actually lose on this trip. So I tried to ensure that I was never going to be able to replace what worked out to be roughly 6,000 calories a day. Uh, I just wasn't going to be able to carry that. Um, I was carrying around about um, 2,800 to 3,500 calories. Um, but as I said, I just got to the stage where I was struggled to eat sometimes. I just didn't feel like eating it. Um, I avoided bread for this trip. Normally I'll take wraps. Uh, and I think the only time I used wraps when I had uh, dehydrated dip. Um, uh, but normally I'd have a, a peanut butter wrap. In this case, I'd just eat the peanut butter and forget the wrap. <laughs> I can understand that. Um, I usually eat a lot of jerky on these trips. Not a huge amount, but it certainly it's, it's, it forms a part of my meals. Um, and in this trip... Again, I don't know what it is. I mean, I just, I just found that um, I just wasn't into jerky on this trip. Um, so it's, it's. I find that every trip that I do, there's something that has served me well for years, and all of a sudden it's like, no, nah, I just don't. I feel like eating at this time, and I, and I don't know why that is. There is one enduring thing that that we both get tired of, of, and uh, that's the cliff bars. So you did send some cliff bars back? Well, again, it's really funny. It's sort of, if there's a cliff bar sitting at home in the cupboard, it doesn't last very long. Uh, but on the trip, I just find that, um, particularly during the start of the trip, I wasn't eating a lot of them. Um, the new nut butter filled cliff bars, definitely ate all those. Uh, and I think they'll become the mainstay of the trips uh, from now on. Um but yeah, it's and towards the end of the trip, I was eating all the Cliff Bars. I was certainly looking for something that had reasonable sort of calories and and was easy to eat. Um, I'd find at the start of the trip, I'd eat a Cliff Bar and I'd eat small pieces of it over the day. But by the end of the trip, I was eating the entire thing in a matter of you know two or three minutes. So um, one of the things I would comment on food, I I know what I like in relation to food. I and not the sort of person that can go into a little takeaway supermarket and say, I'll get some instant noodles or I'll get some um, some tuna sachets or something like that. Um, I know exactly what I like food-wise um, and tend to cater for that. So I don't tend to buy food along the way. I tend to have it all sorted out beforehand and sent onwards as a resupply. Um, and um, I probably... Without actually seeing it all in one pile, I would estimate that I probably sent back about four days' worth of food, uh, and I'll take a photo of that and put that as part of the write-up and see exactly how much I did actually send back. I think you might be surprised. <laughs> um, though, when you went to uh, the towns, you were always, you know, um, often you had um, mobile phone coverage and you were sending me images of, you know, the big lunch that you had at the local tavern or the, um, the dinner at the local pub. Um, so you did sort of uh, get a bit excited about food when you hit town. Yeah, and I think that that was a deliberate thing. As I said, it was um, it was something different. I mean, when you, I was um, I'd planned to hike for thirty three days and have four rest days, and I think thirty three days of uh, freeze dried meals or dehydrated meals uh, or dried fruit or nuts. You want a bit of variety. Um, so I was always looking for things that had 
big calorie contents. Um, my guilty pleasure of choice, if you like, is a, is a Weiss bar and a, and a sugar-free Coke. Uh, that would be the snack that I would chase. Um, but certainly pizzas, uh, McDonald's, um, or where I was in town, I'd often get cheese and prosciutto. Um, just to, you know, I didn't have a lot of sugar uh, during the trip, uh, but certainly if I had a choice between eating fat or eating sugar, fat always wins out for me. Um, so, as I said, uh, eating cheese uh, and a really nice cheese, you know, you go through and eat a, a block, you know, a block of soft cheese, which is, uh, uh, you know, you do that at home and it goes, you know, it goes straight onto your onto your, your hips and your waist. Uh, but I was burning the calories, so I was, I was definitely looking forward to that to those sort of things when I could. Well, I guess that also means that you need to be a little bit careful um, as you ease back into normal life um, about the, your food consumption and um, you know getting back into sort of norm, more normal regular exercise. Yeah, it's always it's always a hard thing. I mean, I um, I certainly have. Um, bought or had some sugar since I've got back, but I was a real sugar hog before I left, and I'm trying to keep a, a control of that. Um, I love peanut butter. I'm not so sure you're you're, <laughs> you're 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 succeeding on that one, but anyway, it's only a few days, so it's okay. Um, I love peanut butter when I'm hiking. Uh, so normally, what I find is I have a 375 gram jar of peanut butter each week. Um, and as much as I love peanut butter, I tend to not eat it when I'm hiking because it's it's loaded with calories, which is good, really good when you're hiking, but not so good because again, I'll just sit there and eat half a jar. So uh, I'm trying to, um, while I'm still on holidays for these last few days, uh, I always tend to pick out a bit, but be back at work, back into a routine again, and hopefully back into a reasonably healthy sort of diet. Okay, so we'll talk about equipment now, um, and I know you're going to put your gear list. Um, on the website? Uh-huh. Um, I'll talk um, next week's episode, uh, which is uh, episode 82. I'm actually going to go into detail and talk about the equipment um, that I took with me. Um, I suppose my comment would be that I've been hiking long enough and done enough longer trips that my gear list really didn't change this time. Uh, I know I came across a number of other hikers on the trail who were still weren't used to doing longer hikes and we're still trying to sort their gear out. Um, really, for me, the gear that I started with and the gear that I finished was, was pretty much the same. Um, I had an equipment failure in relation to my water filter, but that was me using it in a way that it wasn't meant to be used for, so I ended up um, actually uh, <laughs> actually breaking it, uh, and that was my own fault, and I'll talk about that more in detail next week. Okay. My question is always... Um, what did you use most of that you wouldn't do without? And the other question would be, um, what didn't you use at all? Uh, the gloves were probably well, the two things I didn't use and I actually sent back home again was a pair of gloves. Um, I know most people who live in Perth um, think that there's cold this time of the year. Um, <laughs> com- coming out of Canberra where the week before my trip I had minus 7 degrees Celsius, um, my concept of cold is very different. Um, so even though I did have a couple of very cold nights on the trip, at no stage were gloves really necessary, so I sent them home. Yeah. Um, I had a, a camera dry bag, 
but because I'd had a new camera that was waterproof, I didn't end up using it at all. It would just sit in my pocket because it didn't matter if the camera got wet. Uh, it was a, a waterproof, tough sort of camera. Um, my Normally I carry two buffs on a trip, and I didn't end up using the second buff. Um, again, the weather was, wasn't quite cold enough, and it wasn't quite warm enough that I needed that second buff. So um, I think for me, the gear is pretty much sorted. Um, it's more a matter of okay, I know that there's a slightly lighter model on the market uh, and when I get to that sort of stage, um, um, I will look at uh, getting a replacement. I suppose that if I had to identify two things from an equipment perspective uh, that worked really well, it was the foot taping um, equipment, the taping, and probably the Garmin InReach Explorer, um, which I'd got about a month before this trip and really got to have a good play with it over the trip. It made a big difference, um, uh, and it was good from a tracking perspective from people like you who are watching me. Yeah. Look, I, I, I would agree with that, and we'll talk a bit more about that. Um, and both of those items, funnily enough, or interestingly enough, um, your... Uh, so the so the Garmin's not the lightest little item in the world. Um, it you know it does have a bit of weight in it, and um, the other thing is when I saw your bundle of um, taping paraphernalia, I thought, oh my god, what a you know it it was a bit heavy and bulky as well. Now obviously that you'd you'd use up the tape along the way and it would get lighter, but. Um, I just think it's interesting that those two things that you wouldn't do without are, are probably um, relatively bulky and relatively heavy, respectively. Yeah, I think with the Garmin replaced basically a GPS and a personal uh, locator beacon, so it was actually lighter than the two of those that I would normally carry. Uh, there were lighter options, um, uh, and I'll go through and do a full review of the Garmin and explain why I chose the InReach Explorer and not the Mini, because it was a conscious decision. Uh, but yeah, it's as I said, it was a piece of equipment that was probably new well and truly. In fact, that and the taping were the two things I normally wouldn't carry on a, on a trip, uh, and they're the two things I'm glad that I did. So you mentioned in the next episode you'll look more into the equipment. Um, what about uh, things like concerns that you had uh, before and during the um, the hike? Uh, the concerns that I had were was probably a couple. One was the issue of overuse injuries, which I'd already discussed, and I'd made sure that I'd done enough exercise and enough preparation that um, while it was never guaranteed, um, it was going to be, be the best, give me the best opportunity to, to succeed that I could. My knees did start getting a bit sore around Collie onwards, uh, and partly because the, the hills tended to increase, the ups and the downs. And I think because I'd lost so much body body weight and body fat, I'd lost a bit of padding off the whole body, I suppose. So um, I'm normally fairly broad, chest and broad across the shoulders. Um, and because all my exercise was going into my legs, uh, I lost bulk across the upper of the chest and, and shoulders. And I noticed from the start of the trip towards the end of the trip, I noticed the weight on my shoulders a lot more whereas I had a lot more bulk and padding to, to provide a bit of protection. So 
again, it was the overuse injuries and the weight loss that were the concerns initially. Um, personal safety was one that probably didn't worry me too much. I'm a, I mean, I'm a large male, and while I don't think I'm immune to uh, someone attacking me or having a go, the track is pretty safe. Um, but having said that, though, I had one one day where you know I'm travelling alone. I was not really seeing. I was seeing the odd hiker here and there, and I wasn't really seeing people who weren't hikers. Uh, and I had one day where I came across a family who were fishing off a bridge uh, in a, a remote area, um, and you know I was chatting to them. And this is going to sound really funny, but they 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 were asking about you know was I travelling alone? Where am I going to be staying that night? Am I meeting anybody? Um, when am I going to get there? And it was almost it almost raised my hackles, if you like. It was like this information they're asking is really specific. Uh, and again, even as a large male, I'm thinking, oh God, you know, I think these these people are fine, but it just raised concerns. You know, when people start asking you too much fine detail, um, it, you know, I almost thought, do I go on to the next hut just to be on the safe side? And I did, I did have a, a, a not very restful sleep that night. It was fine. Um, and again, I tend to be reasonably trusting and I tell people what I'm doing. You tell people way too much, Tim, <laughs> yeah, uh, which is interesting because I think if, if I, I probably would have been much more alert um, earlier in that conversation than perhaps you, you were. You probably got almost to the end before you started to go, oh, hang on a minute. <laughs> That's a lot of questioning. <laughs> yeah, I mean, hindsight's really lovely. As I said, it, it was just... They were a bit concerned about being asked and trying to be nice. But when you're traveling alone as a hiker, um, as I said, in hindsight, what I would have said is, oh, yeah, I've got a couple of people who are coming from the other direction and I'm meeting, meeting them there tonight. Um, but it's just, as I said, it was the only time on the trip that I didn't that I didn't feel particularly safe. And it was more, as I said, it was just the, the questioning was so specific and so, so detailed. As I said, normally it's... If another hiker had asked that, wouldn't have been an issue. But as I said, it was just someone who wasn't hiking, who wanted to know too much detail. Um, and as I said, it might have been my paranoia. Um, but um, um, yeah, and, and also I must comment, given that my Garmin inReach, I had actually published uh, uh, my mapping profile uh, and that it went on the, uh, my uh, public Facebook page. And you could see wherever I was on the entire trip uh, within about about 20 minutes was how often it was publishing. Yeah. So so I got that little, you know, Tim's invited you um, to um, follow him on his journey. And I'm thinking, oh, you know, how special am I? And then I discovered that everybody else was special too. <laughs> I went, well, there you go. <laughs> Well, I must admit, I, I figure that in most cases, if someone wants to travel into the middle of nowhere to have a go at me, um, I think, you know, good luck to them. Um, I think um, people who have got bad intentions tend to be lazy. They don't tend to travel anywhere. Um, uh, and, and funnily enough, I was uh, walking into, uh, into Gardner campsite and someone coming the other way, and I thought, that's really odd, they don't have a backpack on. Uh, and it was actually someone from the Bibbleman Track Foundation who was in the area, uh, looked at the um, the Garmin InReach map, knew that I was approaching and, and walked out to meet me. 
and I'd just forgotten all about the fact that the, you know um, my my trip was very public. Uh, <laughs> yes. And, uh, and yeah, as I said, you know, within twenty minutes, you could see exactly where I was. So he he, he took the chance that was a live act, act, live active feed, and, and walked out to meet me and came across. So as I said, I felt comfortable and safe the entire trip except for that one instance. Uh, and as I said, normally that's probably the only time I've I've in my entire life that I felt that way. But it was just funny, as I said, the questions were just a bit too specific. <laughs> so when you got to the end, Tim, um, we those who were following you and who saw um, some of the the Instagram and um, Facebook clips, particularly on that last day, know that it was uh, overwhelming. Let's just just say that. Um, so how are you feeling now? What's what's I, I guess your sense of um, emotion? Um, it's a bit a bit hard at the moment. It, it's quite funny in that respect. I um, up until the last night, it was like, "Yep, I'm fine. I'm finishing the trip tomorrow. Not a problem." Um, and then on the last day, it was quite funny. It was. Um, uh, because Helena campsite had burnt down, if Helena still had been there, I would have finished the day beforehand. Um, but I didn't feel like doing a 38 kilometer on the last uh, trip on the last day. So I did um, basically 20, 28 kilometers uh, second last day and then around, around about 10 kilometers the last day. And those 10 kilometers on the last day, that's when the emotion tended to hit me. I um, It was almost like it was... Yeah, when I actually got to the the northern terminus, there was elation that I'd finished, but it was also a bit of a sense of loss that this had been my life for the last five weeks, and all of a sudden it's like, you know, you get up in the morning, you go through a routine and the rhythm, the day's pretty much the same wherever you happen to be, it doesn't matter what the the terrain's like, um, you know, you have lunch, you have dinner, um, you know, it's it's pretty much the same process for five weeks. Uh, and all of a sudden it's like, okay, what am I going to do now? Um, I think because I'm still on holiday as I'm recording this, um, I don't leave Perth for another couple of days. Uh, and again, it's still a bit artificial. I don't go back to work until next week. Um, so I think once I get back home and I'm back at work, it'll be okay. I'm back into the normal routine. Um I don't know. It's 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 hard to get back into a routine at the moment because you're know, living out of a hotel, um, and you don't tend to think about uh, I've got to go to work and I've got to go shopping and all that sort of stuff. I'm still in holiday mode. Um, I am finding it a bit hard to get back into the exercise um, because again I have a routine and a rhythm at home, and this is the holiday mode at the moment. It's not not the routine and rhythm I normally have. Um. um I don't know. It's sort of, um, I'm starting to think more about what my plans are over the next couple of years. Um, and yeah, and it's probably focused that a bit more about where I'm heading and where I see myself being in a couple of years' time. And I just haven't really thought too much about it. It had been a plan in the back of my mind, but now it's been, okay, look, I think I need to start thinking about this and starting to put time frames on, on, on these plans that I've been just putting there as a, as a um, as a potential, as a possibility sometime down the track. Okay. You know, um, we went to Kalamunda um, Trailhead with, at, at the, for you, which was uh, the end of the 
um, the Bibbulmun track hike. And, uh, the thing that struck me, I think, was, you know, it's, it's, you know, very lovely. It's across the road from a, uh, you know, suburban shopping center and, um, the information center is, is down the road a little bit. Um, after a, you know, a thousand and a few kilometers, standing there it was a bit like oh is this it is this kind of you know and I think the thing that I would sort of say for others who were going to do the end-to-end my whether you're doing south to north or north to south um, I think it'd be really nice to have somebody at the other end um, to greet you as as you come come in and uh, you know if and that's not possible for everybody but this is a huge achievement. I mean, this is just an amazing um, accomplishment and, uh, you know, anybody who does it, you know, needs to have a little bit of a, a cheer squad at the end and, um, you know, pe- pe- people, um, uh, I guess, uh, offering congratulations and celebration um, as they come through. So. Yeah, and I and I found that when I finished as well, it was like I, I walked up. I knew I could see that I was getting close to the trailhead. I knew, I knew what the uh, what it looked like from the back, and you know, I went up there and touched the sign. And it's like, okay, is is that it? It's all <laughs> done now. <laughs> yeah, and then, yeah, as I said, for that last day, I was looking for any excuse not to finish. You know, I was like two and a half kilometres out of uh, Hewitt's Hill campsite. I stopped in at the camel farm to buy an ice cream. Um, <laughs> I was walking relatively slowly. It, you know, it should have, even given the train, which was quite steep, downhill and uphill towards the end, um, I think it took me around about um, uh, just a bit over four hours. It probably should have taken me about two and a half to three hours. So it was only really an extra hour. But you know, it, was, it was almost like I was trying to delay... Uh, finishing just so I can keep on going and I think having having someone there at the end to meet you probably is that bit of extra bonus um, you know it's sort of not as I said not always possible uh, but uh, it would have been nice to have Jill there say to meet me when I finished but you know my finishing time was a bit arbitrary I'd planned on finishing on the Friday I finished the day ahead I could have finished two or three days later so it really, really was one of those sort of things, you know, when you've got locals living in Perth or, or friends or relatives living in Perth, it's a bit easier to say, look, can you come out and meet me? Because I think it is it is a good way to celebrate such a, a, a big finish. Well, having said that, I mean, you know, there were a lot of people who were watching um, through social media and, you know, lots of congratulations. And that, that was just fantastic to see um, the comments that people were making and, um you know, our um, Australian hiker friends, but uh, also family um, who are also monitoring your um, trip and, and progress as well. So um, we, we should say a big thanks to everybody because that was, I th- that was great comfort for me, but I presume that was a great comfort for you too. It was, and I certainly appreciated the comments I was getting along the way and people saying thank you for doing this. And even the pe- I'd met a number of people between Kalamunda and Dwelling Up um, who were starting their trip saying, look, we've been listening and this has been really good. So that was greatly appreciated. Um, all right. So that was probably my views or my expectations of the track. But how did, how did your thinking and feeling change over the trip during both the planning stage as well as the trip itself? So I think um, in the lead up to, 
your trip, uh, it, you know, there was a lot of mechanical stuff that, um, in terms of planning and organising and and uh, sorting things and so on and, you know, dri- driving you to the airport at, you know, pre-dawn and, um, and then, uh, you know, I think the sort of absence makes you realise what, what you're doing um, and, you know, the... The images along the way, that first, that first video of you sitting there waiting, that really sticks in my mind. Uh, you, you waiting for the, uh, the hail to ease before you could get started. So that was sort of an hour and a half along the way. Um, I, I think I was concerned about your personal safety. Um, the, the Garmin inReach really helped me with that. It wasn't just the fact that, um, I could track you as you went but I could also zoom in and check out the terrain. So that was a good thing for me because I, I sort of know the, the sorts of terrain that you enjoy most um, and could kind of connect how you might be feeling um, with the terrain that you're experiencing. Um, so that, you know, that was great. Um, it, it was also lots of people um, – uh, friends and family knew knew what you were doing, and they'd say, "You know, how's Tim going?" And I'd get the phone out and show them. Sometimes they didn't want to know. It was a little bit like, you know, "How are you feeling today?" But please don't tell me. Um, but I told them anyway, <laughs> and I showed them, um, and they were polite enough to be interested. Um, but those things were really important. I could see the progress, and I could see um, how how you were going. Um, and it, from a personal safety perspective, uh, it certainly uh, comforted me. Uh, we did have a moment where um, uh, you were in a little bit of a, a satellite uh, hollow and um, from one afternoon to the next morning, um, I wasn't – I couldn't see you moving and um, – you know that was that was probably the only occasion usually the satellite would work usually uh you know there might be text messaging either through the phone or through the satellite um or, or email or a phone call so you know there were lots of different ways to engage um and on this particular sort of afternoon evening and early morning um i didn't get anything at all and that was a bit of a bit of a concern and I went into a meeting and uh, said to my work colleagues, um, haven't, haven't seen Tim move since yesterday afternoon, so forgive me, but I'm, I'm monitoring and I'm putting the phone on the, um, on, on the table. And they, they, you know, they were pretty understanding and, um, kept asking me during the meeting if you'd moved again. And, and then all of a sudden I got, I think you must have moved a, a few hundred metres out of the hollow and I got all of the messages um, uh, from the satellite readings from the afternoon through the evening into the morning in one go. Um, and so so that was a good thing. But, you know, people were understanding and I think that inReach was probably the best thing i'm not i don't know how much it cost him but i reckon it was worth it um from from my perspective so so uh yeah that that was good i think it was hard to see you at the end uh trying to finish um 
and not being there. Um, uh, I was enjoying, enjoying the weather in Port Douglas um, at the time. So that that was tough. Um, uh, but it was, you know, it was nice to hear about the people that you were um, meeting along the way and uh, getting those images of the, f- the food at the pub. Um, uh, wish you were here. <laughs> Having a great dinner, wish you were here. So, you know, and it was a long time. I mean, you know, five five weeks um, uh, or more, six weeks, uh, is, a, is a long time to be a distant observer almost it was it was quite an interesting um experience so yeah it's uh incredibly incredibly proud incredibly incredibly um pleased about what you've done uh and i just know uh given the, the distances that you did in a day uh the length of time you know you were talking about overuse injury i i I'm pretty confident I wouldn't have been able to um, keep up. Um, and, you know, interesting you're saying about the Achilles injury, which is something that I have as well. So, um, yeah, just, I, you know, I don't know what, what happens next, Tim, uh, in this sort of hiking um, uh, adventure that uh, we're on, but... Um, a thousand kilometers, it's going to be pretty hard to beat that, that's for sure. Um, we do have, well, I am now in planning mode for next year's trip, uh, which won't be as anywhere near as long as this one. But, Thank um, goodness. Um, this is one we'll both be doing um, in, in under 12 months' time. So once I start planning that and get a bit closer to that, I'll let everyone know what that's going to be. Yeah, and I did say that I only do, you know, Two weeks or less, and apparently this one's three weeks. But... This, one, this one's a three-week trip, so. Um, okay. Um, well, that's pretty much that for this episode. Um, really, this was just to try and give a brief overview of what I thought was going to happen on this trip uh, as opposed to what did. And, and again, as I said at the start of this uh, this episode, you can plan as much as you like, but the plan needs to be flexible. Things change. The weather isn't as you thought it would be. Uh, things just happen. Um, so, you know, there needs to be enough flexibility within your planning to allow you to vary what you're going through and doing. But uh... And, you know, the thing about all of that encouragement and um, acknowledgement and kind words and uh, supportive gestures and all of those sorts of things um, along the way make the unexpected easier to to manage and easier to cope with. Um, You don't have to be as public as Tim was um, on social media, but, you know, if you you have some way of connecting with a group of people who are close to you and supportive of you while you're doing these sorts of hikes, then make sure you do that because, you know, when when things start to unravel a, a little bit, it's those thoughts from home and those um, that encouragement is is the the stuff that I got a sense that really kept Tim going. One final comment that I would make, which we haven't really gone through and discussed, is hiking for this distance for this length of time, um, whether it be as as a solo hiker or as a as a two or a three, it doesn't really matter. Um, it's certainly the physical component is fairly important and there's something you need to factor in, but there's also a mental component as well. And for me, mentally, 
this trip was never in doubt. Um, I'm used to being by myself. I'm used to being with other people. Um, so the mental aspect was something that was never going to worry me. And it's something you really can't train for. It's, it's like, well, how do you train for mental fitness and mental ruggedness? I think really having the experience, having done the training, knowing that the physical side of things is taken care of makes the, 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 uh, the mental um, concerns a bit less. Um, but um, it is something to consider uh, and something to think about when you're going through and planning this is, you know, are you able to do a trip like this by yourself or should you be doing it with someone else? And, and, every, and the answer you're going to get is, is going to be different for everybody. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Okay, so we hope you've enjoyed this episode. Um, and next week's episode will actually be on um, uh, the equipment I used for this trip. Uh, I'll go through and publish a gear list as part of that. Uh, and while I'm not going go to go through and discuss every piece of equipment I carried, I'll, I'll go through and discuss the equipment that I used as a general overview and, and why I've chosen what I did. And I'll talk particularly about the key pieces of equipment uh, that I thought would be quite useful for people to have on a trip like this. So hopefully you look forward to that episode next week. As always, this episode is available to download through the Australian Hiker website, through SoundCloud, through Stitcher Radio and through iTunes. If you have the opportunity, please go through and give us a five-star rating on iTunes to help get the message out there. As I said, next week's episode will be the last in this series on the Bibbleman track and then we'll return to our normal broadcasting uh, podcast schedule. That's all for me. Bye for now. And bye from me. I think um, I think that.